it was never like a, oh, I, I've arrived. That, that was never me. And I think that's why I still have that passion and always working on my game because I still to this day don't believe that I arrived to the potential that I can, that I can get to. Welcome to the Just Women Sports Podcast, where we talk to the biggest athletes in the world about the untold stories behind their success. I'm Kelly O'Hara, and my guest today is Tina Charles. Tina Charles is the definition of a legend both on and off the court. The number one player coming out of high school, she won two NCAA championships on two undefeated UConn squads. The WNBA Rookie of the Year in 2010, she won MVP in 2012. And an eight-time All-Star and two-time scoring champ, she's also won three Olympic golds with Team USA. And if that's not enough, she's an active philanthropist, and in her spare time, she's directed two films, both of which debuted at the Tribeca Film Festival. Tina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. What an amazing intro. I mean, like, talk about being very accomplished in all things. It's, it's pretty incredible. And I saw you over there smiling a little bit when I was reading off some of the I was I was smiling because I wasn't expecting the intro. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It's funny. There's sometimes when, like, the guests, I'll do the intro and they're like, oh, dang. I didn't, re- like, I don't, re- you know, you, re- you know you've done it, but it's funny exactly. to like, hear it all in one space, which... Um, it's pretty incredible and I'm so excited to have you today and thank, thank you, you for the time. Um, but you've accomplished so much and before we get into like all of the huge things that you've done, I want to go back to the beginning, which is childhood to see where you started. You're originally from Queens, New York. Yep. Yep. Um, Queens. Let's Queens, do it. <laughs> yeah. Which is obviously a basketball mecca. So how did you get into basketball? Was that just like you're from Queens, you're going to play basketball. Um, it was, yeah, it was a little bit of that. And it was also just me being an active child. Um, always running around, jumping, just doing things that, a, that an active child would do. I did basketball, softball, soccer, flag football, whatever it was. My mom just put me into anything that I was drawn to. And like nice. you mentioned, you know, being born and raised in Queens, New York, um, just being a kid from New York, there's basketball courts everywhere. Yeah. And um, that's where I gravitated to. Um, during recess, playing against the guys after school, playing against the guys. And, you know, there was a time where I used to have to wait in order to be picked on a, on a team. Really? For me, that was just humbling beginnings. Um, so yeah, it was always basketball for me. That makes sense. So you, you played a bunch of different sports, but it was always basketball and you, I mean, you kind of touched on it. You think that was based on a little bit of where you grew up, like you said, New York, tons of basketball courts all throughout the city i lived in brooklyn for a couple years and i always thought it was so cool to see people just like there's always people on the courts and there's Mm -hmm. courts everywhere which is awesome and i love it and i think that's why usa is so good at basketball because it's accessible you know like you can as a kid you can go and play so um you would say that that is the reason that you kind of like gravitated towards basketball it was probably like the easiest to do no, it was actually the hardest, and I believe that's why I gravitated towards really? it. Really? So me growing up in Queens, specifically in East Elmhurst, um, there was a school called PS127, and there was all these basketball courts, but then there was a cage within the park. And people who played in the in the cage, they were really good. And okay. I always had to wait my turn. And, I, and for me, it was just like, how do I get inside the cage? So I had a friend, another female who was from the same area. She would always be chose to play. Uh, she was well advanced for, for her age, our age, and 
at times when they weren't playing, she'll play catch with me. She'll help me with my dribble, just little things. Yeah. Um, and that's what inspired me because I actually wasn't good at it. And I just wanted to get better. And it was something that I was just drawn to. For me, no way. I'm, I'm usually better at doing things when I'm just thrown into it and I'm not have any experience in doing it. Like when we touch on film. So um, that was just a silver lining for me. It was just um, something for me to get better at. That's, so were you, would you say you were better at the other sports that you tried in the beginning? Um, when I did soccer and uh, softball, I was in Florida. Um, okay. My mother and I, we lived in Florida for a couple of years, and then we moved back to New York, and obviously with the season changing and all that, it was just like basketball is what it's going to be. So yeah. I wouldn't say I was better, but uh-huh. I had more time and more access to do basketball just being in New York and Parks Me and everywhere. Yeah, so at what point in your childhood were you like, I'm pretty good at basketball or like basketball is it for me. <laughs> to be honest, there was never a point where really? I thought, oh, I'm pretty good at basketball. You know, I grew up as an only child. Basketball is a team sport. I just gravitated. I was able to be around my close friends around the way. Um, I was able to travel. We went to the different boroughs, played in all the little street tournaments and all of that. Um, it was just something for me to be with my friends. It, it was never like a, oh, I, I've arrived. That, that mm. was never me. And I think that's why I still have that passion and always working on my game because I still to this day don't believe that I arrived to the potential that I can that I can get to wow that's incredible and like super interesting because not to jump ahead but I mean you came out of high school as the number one recruit so at what point were you starting to be like basketball like I'm gonna play in college like that's what I'm shooting for I'm gonna play in college and then I want to play pro and this kind of I'm going off on tangents but the WNBA wasn't around until 97, 90, right. 1997, 1996. So right. would you say that you were influenced by NBA in the Heavily. beginning? Yeah, Heavily. Okay. Just grew up as a New York Knicks fan. Love Patrick yeah. Ewing, the 90s Knicks, Allen Houston, all those guys. Um, and then New York Liberty, when they came around in 97, you know, my mom, she became a season ticket holder. Cool. Um, and we went to all the games. Um, I want to say I played on the AAU team that was based out of the Bronx. Uh, the New York Gazelles and that coach he saw me playing pickup and he gave me his card and he said you can be real good you have the height and so no I joined a, joined an organized team and that's when I really learned the fundamentals of basketball and that's when he said hey the gym is open early if you want to come before practice and I think that's how I got into my routine of coming before practice to work on my game staying after to work on my game and that's when things started turning then I went to Christ the King um, in Middle Village Queens and I think when college coaches started coming around, when, when uh, letters started coming in, you know, I thought, okay, this is a great gateway to get into school. Mother doesn't have to pay for anything. Um, yeah. And I just took it as that. You know, I'm very humble. My mom is very humble. Um, I never, I, like I said, I never thought that I arrived. I still don't think. I still think there's more that I can do. I feel like that is the mentality that elite athletes have to have. You know, like you, you constantly have to be like right where I'm at right now isn't good enough to be able to make to the next because at the end of the day we've all you know you're you're a professional athlete in the WNBA have achieved many amazing things but you're still like no I haven't reached my potential and I feel like that's kind of an innate quality of high level super succeeding athletes which I which is cool to hear you say so you you touched on this Christ the King high Mm -hmm. school in Queens some serious basketball talent has come out of that school so give a little insight into like the new york city high school basketball scene because it's pretty much like a it's like a pressure cooker a lot of great players come out of it what was that like for you as as a high schooler 
Um, you know, to be honest, <laughs> I didn't. I actually wanted to go to Archbishop Malloy. Um, okay. That's a school that I actually wanted to go to, but I got on the waiting list because when you're trying to get into a private school in New York, you have to take the Catholic entrance exam. Okay. And someone at my mother's job said, hey, you should visit Christ the King. They're known for athletics. And we went on the visit and we were blown away. I had no clue that Sue went there, no clue that Shamika Holesclaw went there. Yep. Um, again, my mother, she's from Jamaica. My dad's from Trinidad. So little sport mentality, you know, we're just... Oh, you're on a team? Great. This is something for you to do in spare time? Great. Exactly. Yeah. So that's how it was for me growing up. And when I got there, I was just blown away. And then I was like, all right, this is, this is where I'm going to be. Um, and from the time I got there, you know, you learned about the tradition. Um, playing on JV was very humbling for me. Um, seeing varsity. I want to say my freshman year at Christ the King, there were seven seniors that went D1. And that wow. was unheard of, you know. Um, and that just showed what... The coaching staff were able to do with those players um and it was very rewarding for me and then playing on varsity playing alongside the individuals i did it was just a lot of fun and like you said the competition in in new york public schools as far as um competition wise and then just catholic and then meeting up with like epiphany prince we would always go head to head she played at murray bertram um she's also a great player in the WNBA. but those are just like really some of the times of my life if i was supposed to look back and think about how much fun i was having um, it was definitely during that time. There's, there's many tri-state area WNBA players that I played against um, and that I came up with and that are where I am now. So it's really great to see. Yeah, that's incredible that you, like, that's where you started your journey was against all of these other players who have become mm-hmm. so successful and done so well and have, have reached the level that you have. Do you feel like facing that much competition and scrutiny at a young age shaped you as a player and as a person um yeah definitely you know I'm pretty sure there's a lot of teammates and a lot of people who have a lot to say of how I carry myself and just the swagger that I have um being no nonsense uh just being about my business is just because that's how it was growing up for me you know you in order for you to go out and 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 tout and be the person you want to be you got to handle the business on the court and yeah. playing against the likes of Akia Vaughn playing against Essence Carson playing against um Rosalind Unwude, who's like one of the greatest sports analysts that we have right now when it comes to uh, being on TV. Um, that was everything for me. And it definitely matured me and allowed me to know what competition really is. Yeah, makes sense. And it's very cool to think that's like where it started. You capped off an incredible high school career by being named the National Player of the Year by multiple out- outlets. Your team won 57 consecutive games and was ranked number one in the country. So... As this is happening, you're like on this amazing high school team, you're smashing it yourself. How did the recruiting process for college look for you? The recruiting process for me was very easy in a sense. I always knew I wanted to go to UConn. You know, around okay. that time when I was at was in, when I was in high school is when ESPN was really, you know, showing women's college basketball and being able to see Sue and Diana and Swing Cash and Asia Jones and um, Tamika Williams, and just seeing the crowd, seeing them win, how competitive they were, seeing not just them being in tune, but just the bench. Um, it just really seemed like they had a great chemistry and a great camaraderie. Yeah. And so I won't forget when I, when I received the letter of interest from UConn, and I was just like, this is where I want to go. And when I went on my visit, I only went on one visit to UConn, you know, Coach Toriyama sat me down and he said, the only way you're going to play is if you work hard. And for me, up to that point in my young career, that's all I did was go to the gym early, stay after, work on my game. Um, so that was just music to my ears. 
Um, and so my, for me, it was easy. I, I just knew where I need to be is who's someone who's going to push me to another level and challenge me. Yeah, that that's incredible. I feel like that is a like a ten percent where that happens for college or high school athletes where they're like, I know where I want to go. You know, it's this school or bust. At what point did you were you able to commit? Like, was it junior senior year? And junior then, year. Okay, I, junior I year. And was it like you went and you went to UConn? And they gave you an offer, and you're like, "Yep, done. I'm here. I'm coming." Oh, I mean, respectfully, I went up there. We, you know, that was probably like my second time being up there. I went to okay. a handful of games along the way. You know, oh, I nice. sat down okay. and I was able to tell them like, hey, you know, this is where I want to go. So I verbaled. And then obviously you have your level of intent day when you sign with your other seniors alongside of yep. you. And so that whole thing happened as well. Nice. So going into UConn, mm-hmm. what was your feeling as a freshman, as this highly recruited <laughs> basketball player entering this incredibly successful program oh that i was terrible (laughs) really (laughs) yeah i mean i was going up against the best of the best you know that you that being the number one recruit can take you only so far when you're going to UConn. everyone has been in that position Um, and that's exactly why i i went there so i was getting my rear end kicked every day in practice not only from coach oriyama but from the players in my position, you know, having to really learn what what competing is. In my first two years at UConn, I didn't even scratch the surface. You know, you mm. see yourself being here and Coach Oriyama sees you all the way up. And that's the level that he wants you to play at all the time. And um, he would always tell me, you know, pressure is when someone asks you to do something that you're not capable of doing. And all the things that he was asking me to do and commit to on a daily basis were things that he knew that I can get to. and. I eventually turned the corner around my junior year, and the rest was history for me personally. That's incredible. But, was there anything specifically that he brought out of you? Um, consistency. Mm. Um, just my approach to the game. You know, Coach Oyama is so great because he knows how to tap into every player and get the best out of them. You know, I played three years with Maya Moore, and I played two years with, with Renee Montgomery. The way he spoke to all three of us was different as to get the best out of them. You know, I needed that tough love you know I needed that person in my face to get into me um and the other and Maya Renee was totally different you know so I think that's what makes him great and that's what pushed me into another level was because he never stopped he was very consistent you know I told him hey I want to be player of the year I want to be an all-american I want to win a championship and he was like well these are the things you're going to have to keep doing and him and um Christine Daly they were just um with me from day one and they just put me at another level and put my mindset at another level of what it means to come into every day and be about your business and work hard. Yeah, I feel like great coaches make players think bigger than when they're at where they're at in the moment mm-hmm. just because they can they can see the potential and I, and I feel like for certain players most I think it's like that allows you to actually like someone telling you you can make it here, you can do this can be huge for a career and be kind of so impactful, I think, in setting the, the, the journey on the right path. And it sounds like that's kind of what he did. He was like, you're here. I know you can be here. Yeah, the accountability and discipline factor was, was very key. Um, just holding myself accountable to my teammates and to him. And um, it worked out. It worked out really well. Do you have any good Coach Oriyama stories? Like, is there anything... <laughs> Like any any good anything you want to share like funny things, there's gotta funny be something. Things. Um, funny things. Uh, 
No, I don't think anything is literally funny. <laughs> in that regard, I don't think anything's really funny. You know what? I'm not even gonna put it out there. It it was good times. It was good okay. Times. You had fair to enough. It was fair, good times. fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> So you, you touch on, you come in, you get your ass kicked, basically, and, mm-hmm. but you come out, you win back-to-back, you go, you go back-to-back undefeated seasons. Is this your, this is your junior and senior year? Yes, this is 2009 and 2010, yes. Yeah, correct. so back-to-back undefeated seasons, you win national championships in 2009-2010. I'm very curious about this, because my senior season at Stanford, we were undefeated all the way up until the national championship, and we lost. And I'm curious how, if there was a shift in the team, like, was there a conversation around, we want to go undefeated? What, what did it look like going into that 2009 season that made it into the season that it was and in, in being okay. undefeated and winning national championship? So coming off of 2008, um, we made it to the final four and that was a big feat. And we lost to Stanford in the semifinal game. Mm. And when we came back to UConn, um, Coach Toriyama does this thing where he'll let the seniors leave and then we'll have a meeting with whoever else is going to be there. And the meeting that we had, he said, you know, we have, in order to win a championship, he would always say, you need a great point guard, a great wingman, and a great post. And he said, we have two of those filled with Renee Amaya and Tina Charles. We're, you're only, we're only going to be as good as where you take us. If mm. you decide to take the next step, we'll be at the next step. And going into my junior year, that's when the tide turned as far as my work ethic, coming in the gym earlier, just working on fundamental little things. And that's when it just clicked for me. And um, I think coming into that junior year, like we got a whole new strength and conditioning coach and she put us just through some crazy 6 a.m. workouts that was just amazing. We used to say that we have to get that 2%. And I want to say to my memory that there was this quote that she told us that that's what the separation was. It's just 2%. So we would come in with that mindset. We used to say something like, ain't nothing to it but to do it. Um, we were just all locked in, like very much so just all locked in. And Renee Montgomery did a great job leading us. Maya is Maya. Um, and then everyone else just filled in. You know, We had great freshman class with Tiffany Hayes and Caroline Doty, and they did their thing. And it was just great. It was it was very seamless. It was one of the best years. So I think that was the difference. It was just the leadership that we had and just the mentality that we had going into that t- 2009 season. And obviously, now we're winning games, but, you know, Coach Toriyama did a great job at making the practices harder than the games. Mm. Like, he would put us down five points against our practice players. Like, crazy situations to where in the games, we just wanted to kick everybody's ass. It, it, and we weren't thinking about, oh, we're on a streak or anything like that. It was just um, putting in the work that we were doing and reflecting it from practice into the games. Yeah, that makes sense. I love the, you just need that 2%. Because yeah. that's something we talk about on the national team. Uh, our old strength and, condition, strength and conditioning coach, Don Scott, she would talk about aggregation of marginal gains. And it's like, mm-hmm. you're here, you know, you're, you're at the top. You're, you're almost at the top of the mountain. And... You're not going to get a 10%. You know, no one here is going to get 10% better. Exactly. But you could get 1% better in, you know, your recovery, in your nutrition, in your strength and conditioning, in your technical, your tactical, all those things. Like, And by getting that 1%, you're going to get 10% overall. Exactly. So I love that. And I think that's so smart. And it's like such a great way to look at things when you are almost the best of the best and right at that top. But you need like 
the little thing on top, the cherry on top. Yeah. Uh, and so true. So you said that you didn't, you guys weren't like thinking, oh, we're undefeated. We don't want to lose any games. Like that no. wasn't even, so going into the, fi- the, the final four, you weren't like, holy shit. We're I mean, obviously, well, we're, we're looking at it as like going into the final four, we're looking at it as like, oh no, we have to win out. The whole NCAA mm. tournament, you have to win out. Yeah. But we're not thinking about this streak. I don't mm. know, was it? I don't know if it was 37 no, 39 no, whatever it was. Like, we're not thinking about this streak. We're thinking about, no, we need to win this game in order to get to the championship. So, yeah. yeah. Makes sense. And then you go again in your senior season and you mm-hmm. do it again. Like, to repeat mm-hmm. undefeated seasons, back-to-back, national championships, what, what was it like to end your college career on that type of streak, high, history-making play? Um, it was great. I mean, to be honest, for a moment, I didn't think I was going to end it that way just because if I remember correct in that Stanford game, we were down by like double digit points at halftime. Probably. Yeah. In 2010. And I think yeah. we set an NCAA record for like the lowest scoring at halftime, like in a championship game. I think it was like 25 to 12. Like it was So, so you're making terrible. records on, on both sides. Of, exactly. Of the, it the was, equation. it was terrible, but we just came alive and we remembered everything that we had to do. And I remember Coach Ariyama, that was the first time he came in so chill. And he was just like, you guys know what to do. Really? It's just like practice. He didn't come in yelling. He didn't come in screaming. These were wow. the moments he was preparing us for. And um, for that game to go that way and for us to come out the way we did, um, I was elated. I was emotional. Um, and I was just so thankful. You know, that's a dream come true. Yeah, for sure. That's crazy that it came in chill. But that's like almost, it's funny. Some, when that happens, you're like, okay, we do have this. Like coach isn't freaking out. He knows we can do it. You know, that sort of thing. I love that. That's that's really funny that you remember that he was super chill in that moment. Yeah, yeah. One of the few times. <laughs> one of the few Against times. Yeah. Stories you don't have to tell us. Well, okay, I, I loved reading this. During your time at UConn, you became mm-hmm. just the second player ever to be inducted into the Huskies of Honor while still an active member of the team. Mm-hmm. Which is like, what what is... First of all, what's Huskies of Honor, and and what was that like to be like, I'm still an active, I'm a student athlete still, and I'm getting inducted into this, I, I assume that's your, your, y'all's Hall of Fame? Uh, yeah, for for uh, women's basketball and for the men's basketball side. Um, I want to say Renee Montgomery was the first female basketball player, and then they brought back like Sue and Dee and Swin. Um, for me personally, again, you know, I was, I was just thankful (laughs) yeah I still knew there was ways for me to go but um I did know that I was making an impact while I was playing in school um it was great because my parents were able to be there but but for me it's it's never been about individual success it's never been about accolades I I actually get shy and start sweating when like I'm receiving an award and someone's talking about me it's it's very weird um it's just more I so can already I tell was... just from this interview that that is the case with you because you are yeah. extremely humble and you're just like no I'm just I'm just out to do a good job so yeah, yeah. it's just all about the collective so again the, the fact that my teammates were emotional about it you know the, the the my teammates that I came in with my freshman year they were emotional they knew what I was going through my first two years and everything so it was just full circle so that's all I can say it was just full circle and I'm just thankful and honored yeah I mean you go, you go down as a Husky legend, and again, you cap off your athletic or your college career with, I mean, again, crazy, amazing back-to-back seasons to leave. Like, I'm very jealous. I never won a national championship, so I'm always jealous of people who do and have an undefeated season. Incredible. 
you leave and you're the number one overall pick in the 2010 WNBA draft, the Connecticut Sun. So what was getting drafted and going number one overall like for you? Leaving college, just finish an amazing career. Like what, what was that time of your life like? Uh, being drafted was just a dream come true. You know, again, I grew up going to the Liberty Games, um, representation, seeing players that looked like me, uh, doing something that I was falling in love with, uh, which was a game of basketball. So um, for my dream to come true, to be picked number one, to be honest, it, it didn't matter to me. I just wanted to be on the team. Anyone that believed in my talents in a way that I could impact and, and help. And that happened to be the Connecticut Sun. Um, so there was familiarity bit there, just having been that I just completed four years in Connecticut. And it was like, 40 minutes away, Uncasville in Connecticut and Mohegan Sun from campus. And it was Coach Tebow, you know? It, so it was just very sweet. And I was just, again, thankful. It's a good memory for my parents more so. Yeah, I'm sure. Did you know ahead of time that you were gonna go number one? I mean, there was talks. I mean, obviously I acknowledged the way that I was playing that year. Um, you know, there's things that I saw in the, in the newspaper and what my coaches were telling me. So yeah, I, I definitely had a hunch at the level I was playing at. Um, and just seeing the team who was number one, who had the number one selection, which was Connecticut, and just what they were looking for and what was open there. Were you excited to go, to stay in Connecticut? Like, I guess for me, I actually, I got drafted similarly. Um, Not number one, mind you, (laughs) number three. But uh, there's a Bay Area team at the time in uh, the WPS, which was the league before our current league. And I got drafted there and I was still finishing my college classes at Stanford. So I was super pumped that I like got to stay and be in the same area. And I think even before the draft, I was like, oh, it'd be really cool to go to like LA or all these, you know, different cities. But once I actually, once it happened and I realized this is really nice, like I'm familiar with this place. I have friends, I've, you know, a support system here. I actually get to stay here and start my professional career. Was that similar did you have the similar a similar experience in that oh i'm happy to stay in connecticut yeah for sure i want to say going into the 2010 season sacramento had just folded and they had they actually had the number one pick before they folded and so i was really looking forward to going to california because i'd never been to california i mean obviously i played at stanford and other california teams i don't know who else i played against but I was excited about it because what I knew about California in general was just what I saw on TV. And I was like, oh, it'd be neat. You know, great weather. This would be great. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't look up where Sacramento was on the I didn't see before. And everybody always says that. Every time I said, like, you know, it could have been Sacramento, everyone's like, I don't know if you would have fared no. well in Sacramento. Exactly. Um, but no, at the end of the day, I was very happy it was Connecticut. Um, because just because of the lack of there not being much to do, it brought the teams that I was on for those three years, I mean, those four years, to, to be extremely close. We were always hanging out, yeah. always barbecuing, always hanging out in one another's um, apartments. So that camaraderie, it, it definitely showed itself just being in Connecticut. Yeah, that makes sense. And I yeah. feel like you definitely lucked out not that Sacramento <laughs> folded. Well, you, yeah. you come into the WNBA, which is notoriously a very difficult league for rookies Mm -hmm. like it's I mean it's just a very experienced league but in your first season you set all-time league records for rebounds of 398 I'm like that's so many rebounds and double doubles 22 and were named rookie of the year so you're coming out of college you get drafted number one did you go into your rookie season being like I want to prove a point I want to show like I want to be rookie of the year 
No, no again, <laughs> none of the individual no, accolades are ever just, on my mind. Um, well, not, I was just, not necessarily like you're going for the individual accolade, but like being like, right. I want to be the best. Like, I want to be the best rookie there is. Um, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to go out and play my minutes hard. You know, I'm still coming yeah. off of that UConn mentality. You know, Coach Oriema is like, he wants his freshmen to play like sophomores, sophomores to play like juniors, juniors to play like seniors, and seniors to play like pros. And yeah. he prepped me mentally. Obviously, physical side, I'm going against vets, people who've been in the league for like <laughs> 11, 12 years at that time. But um, playing alongside Asia Jones, who played at UConn, and being with Kara Lawson, you know, they definitely matured me, told me what was needed. Coach, I mean, Coach T, Coach Tebow, he was very transparent in what was needed for me. Run the floor hard, get as many rebounds. I was young. I mean, I wish I could get that amount of rebounds, you know, <laughs> this time in my career. But I'm older now. And to be honest, yeah. most of those rebounds were probably misses from my layups, to be honest to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm my, okay. uh, yeah, I'm my worst critic, so yeah. I can't Fair really enough. I can't really jump up I, knowing that they were probably most from my misses, so Oh, that's hilarious. And I've never thought about that. You could get more rebounds. <laughs> I'm gonna up my rebound count by just They were probably from my miss layups, you know. Yeah. Um, that's so, so good. Yeah. Well, do you start your WM your professional career amazingly, and then in twenty twelve, your MVP, you win league MVP. So like that's that's what, your third season, 2010, 2011, 2012? Correct. And your league MVP. So what do you remember most about that season? Like, did you do anything different personally leading into that season? What was no, it? No, I didn't do anything personally. I, I believe that I've actually had better seasons after that 2012 mm. season. Um, I think what was the best thing I remember was that team. It was such a great team, and it's such a shame that we weren't able to win a championship that year. You know, we finished the year number one. I don't even think, we probably lost maybe like seven, eight games that season. Um, wow. It was just a great team. It was fun to be around. I remember all the things we did off the court. We were always together. Um, it was one of those teams that you think like, okay, what are the many teams that you've been on that was great? And I would have to say that was one of the three teams that I've been on where, you know, it holds dear to my heart. Like, I wish we would have won it. Um, so yeah. yeah, so yeah, I just remember the camaraderie and the team effort and how we just were on point. Everything was just very seamless, how the practices went. But for me personally, I was just playing at a level as to what my team needed from me, the positions that Coach T was able to put me in, the leadership that Kara and Asia had, them holding me accountable to who I needed to be. And it just reflected and this award happened. But I can't say I went in there being 23, like, oh, this is, I'm going to come in this way. No, nah, it was just a great yeah. team. We won a lot of games, and yeah, that just came along the way. That makes sense, and that's cool to to hear you talk to that, like <laughs> that it, that it came from such great team camaraderie. On this podcast, we celebrate women who boldly blaze a trail on and off the field. These are athletes who have changed the game for good. That's why this week, the Just Women Sports Podcast, alongside our presenting sponsor, Wiss, wanted to take a moment to recognize the bravery and power of the athletes of the NWSL who are speaking out against player abuse. This past year has shed a light on some of the darkest parts of this game, unfortunately. But thanks to the courage of these athletes, we have begun to dismantle a toxic system and rebuild a league that puts players first. I want to take a chance to recognize all those that have stood up before and those who continue to speak out for change. It's athletes like you who are changing this game for the next generation. All right, you've played overseas a bunch. You've played in Turkey, Poland, and China. And Russia. Oh, and Russia. Okay. So, yes. Okay. 
do you have what what has that i mean obviously a lot of people listening to this podcast know and fans know reality for many WMA players is that they can make much more money playing overseas like you mm-hmm. just kind of have to do it you supplement one season yep. with the next um so can you talk about your time playing overseas i've heard some crazy stories from people playing in russia so there's got to be something and you played in a but i mean russia china poland turkey like that's a that's a vast mm-hmm. a wide array of countries mm-hmm. and cultures to play in yeah no anytime i reflect on my time overseas i just smile because it's just very appreciative for like where this game of basketball has taken me and just the experiences yeah. I was able to have and just to be able to travel. But um, I want to say one of my favorite years were was playing for Galatasaray, um, which okay. was in Istanbul, Turkey. And I was able to play with Tisha Pinachero, Epiphany Prince, Sylvia Fowles, and Diana. And being able to play alongside Diana for that length of time for a full season, um, I want to say that's what changed everything for me. To see how mm. she approached the game, to see how who Diana is in the WNBA is the same way how she is um, overseas, which is just a killer. Um, the way she practiced hard all the time, the, how accountable she was for her teammates and calling us out on what we weren't doing. Um, just that Mamba mentality, if you want to say, you know, that was very uh, rewarding for me. And just the fun times that we had, you know, being able to go to brunch, having our own car, being able to go to dinner, um, just hang out. Um, so I'm going to say Galatasaray was like, one of my favorite years. And I think that was, actually, I think that was the year going into 2012, to be honest. I think that was my 2011 season. Okay. Um, but just as far as fun, funny stories, it's just little things of how these clubs think and how they go about doing things and playing in Russia and the head coach taking a smoking break. Like he had to go <laughs> outside to, to smoke. Like just little During things practice. like that. Yeah. He was like, all right, you're thinking you're on a water break, but he's, He's like, no, it's going to be longer. It's, it's, it's that. And I want to say my first year playing for Orenburg in Russia, I played alongside Becky Hammond. So that was very mm-hmm. rewarding for me. Yeah. Um, that was my first year overseas. So she made that very easy. Um, but then other than that, you know, I played with some great players, Lindsey Whalen and Christy Tolliver I played with in Moscow. Um, I played with Angel McCautry and, and Fener, Fenerbahce, which is also in Istanbul. But great times. Uh, I love Europe. Um, I could live there in a heartbeat. I love it. Um, so yeah, yeah. And, and then my time in China, you know, I played five years in China. Um, five so adapting, years. Yeah. The last five years I've been in China. Yeah. Dang. So even when COVID happened, I was, I was in China. Yeah. I got sent home in January. Wow. Yeah. So I was literally, I played against Wuhan on Christmas day. Oh my God. I know. It's crazy. That is right? stressful. <laughs> when you think about it now. Yeah. Little yeah. did I know at that time, but. Yeah, exactly. But even my times in China, adapting to the culture, being able to go to the Great Wall, being in Shanghai, I just love traveling. So it was all rewarding for me at this later half in my life. Yeah. Yeah. So you said the team you played on in Turkey was your favorite, but is there, do you have a favorite country that you've played in? Um, Istanbul. I would say Istanbul okay. and Poland because I was able to have a car in those um, cities. Mm. Um, you know, Russia, I had a driver. In China, I had a driver. Um, so I was able to drive and do my own thing. So it was the closest uh, to normalcy for me, having my own car, go to the grocery store when I wanted, go sightsee when I wanted, have family and friends visit. So that was pretty cool. That's sick. Um, I've I've never played overseas. And uh, if I did, it would probably be 
in England. <laughs> or No. I love London. But, I have a lot of family yeah. there. My first Olympics was 2012 in London. And, oh, my gosh, I fell in love. I could live yeah. in London. That's one place I can live easily. I love it. Exactly. Yeah, like, I'm, yeah. I'm, like, I'm not looking for... I would I would maybe play in France uh, because I took French in high school and I, like, love that language. I can't really speak it, but France is a cool, cool, cool country, but I'm just, like, ease, you know? Play yeah. soccer, can still speak the language. London kind of feels... It's just not hard, which I can't imagine. Like, Russia, China, I could never imagine playing in a country like that. That Yeah, be, and China had a translator. Um, so I, you, your translator is, like, your best friend. Because you're the yeah. only American on the team in China. Um, so you just hang tight with, with your translator. Um, the, my teammates are amazing, though. They're so sweet. They're willing to help you, whatever you need. Um, yeah. And then and everywhere else, I didn't need a translator. Like, predominantly yeah. all my teammates spoke English. The, the coaches spoke English. Or they had an assistant coach who spoke English and who could tell you. Um, but, yeah, it was always good times. Nothing but good memories Yeah, makes for me. sense. Mm-hmm. Well, you talked about... London 2012. So your first Olympic gold medal is London 2012. You have family there. You said you have family there? Yes, I do. I do have family there. Amazing. First Olympic gold medal, first Olympics. Mm-hmm. Was it always, like, had you, as a kid, had you watched the Olympics being like, oh, man, I would love to be an Olympic gold medalist? Like, um, was that a dream of yours as a kid? Yeah, I mean, I remember vividly watching the 96 Olympics. You know, I remember seeing that team, you know, in Atlanta. Um, I remember thinking like, oh, this is so neat. And then the year following was the WNBA started. Um, You know, did I think I could reach the heights of being an Olympian, period? Um, At that time, no. You know, it was just all a dream, like, oh, this will be neat. But when I got invited to go to a training camp my senior year in college, Maya and I, and the way things were going, I was fortunate enough that Coach Horayama was the head coach in the sense of knowing his system knowing how non how no nonsense he is how to approach the practices how to approach every game and every possession and how competitive things were you know nothing was given you know just because you know a lot of people say like oh you guys UConn players so of course coach Yama, but it it was probably the hardest for us you know in in that sense um but it was just all amazing for me when I got the phone call from Carol Callen that I made a team I was very emotional every time Mm -hmm. that I've made a team with Carol Callen I'm always crying on the phone because I'm just so thankful because yeah. this league is just so hard. The talent in our league is just so hard, and um, I see the work that other people um, put in. Um, I know that anyone would love to be in my position, and so for it to be London where family is, for them to see me there, I was just happy to be there. I was like, you want me to yeah. get the bags off the bus? What, what you need? You need ice? What you need? Yeah. Your water? Like, it, it didn't even matter about playing. I was just happy to be there. It was just a great experience. Well, you win gold, so how was that moment for you? Because I, I've, I've won a gold one, only one. Um, and the, the feeling of having that medal placed around your neck, to me, mm-hmm. was like... And, and then, like, holding it, because mm-hmm. you actually get this... You know, the, the, the win, the, um, the victory is the medal. You know, that's what's special, I think, about the Olympics. What was that like for you, getting your first gold medal? Um... I was I was just happy, you know. Yeah. When I looked to the left and to the right, you know, Diana was very emotional. Sue was very emotional. You know, they at that point they knew what it took to get there. For me, yeah. um, my mindset was like, wow, like I was just really blown away. Uh, Maya and I, we took time to one another and just saying like how insane that it is that we're even here. Um, but I was a little emotional afterwards. My mom was emotional, you know. I thought back to me sitting in the living room and seeing the '96 team. 
and knowing that there's some young girls who's sitting there looking at me now. Um, so it was very rewarding and I was just very thankful to be there. Very happy to be there. Yeah, I'm, I definitely emotional. That's a good way to put it. So, okay. 2014, you get traded to the New York Liberty. Were you surprised by that trade? Like, was that something no? That I had I had demanded that trade. For? You yeah, did. Okay, yeah. I'm curious about this because, like, that's I'm always wondering, like, because it goes both ways. It goes one or it goes two ways. Either the players like, yo, I want to be in the city. I want to play for this team, mm-hmm. or the team's like, you're gonna go play for the city. You're gonna go play mm-hmm. for this team. So mm-hmm. you had asked for that trade. So what? Yeah. So talk me our through CB, that. During the time of what our CBA was, you know, there was a lack of like um, free agency or if you're a restricted mm. free agent or you're That's un- how we are. unrestricted. So after your four years, you're like a restricted free agent. So any team could match an offer. I mean, Connecticut mm. could match any offer that came my way. And so you technically have to demand a trade. Like you technically mm. okay. have to say, oh, I'm not going to come to training camp or you have to say these things and it makes you seem like the bad person. Um, but that's just due to what our CBA reflects. And for me, I was like, you know, this is where the organization is going. I, I'd rather be in New York. I'd rather be home. It's always been a dream of mine to play um, as a Liberty. And at the time, Bill Lambier was there. I grew up watching Detroit Shock and just their dominance and just what he was able to do with those players. And Cappy Pondexter was there, and she's just a killer as well. And so for me, it was just everything just made sense at that time, and uh, they were able to get it done. That's amazing that you got to go home and play for the team that you watched growing up as a kid. Mm-hmm. Like, I just feel like that's such a cool thing to be able to do. I personally, I mean, you play on Mystics now. Um, I live in D.C., and so I, had, I asked to finally be traded to the Washington Spirit, which isn't my the team I watched growing up, but, like, it's my hometown team. I get to play on the team that I live in the city. You know, like, I feel mm-hmm. like that very rarely happens in professional sports, and it's really nice when you do get to do that. You go get to play for your hometown team. You get to play in the team or in the city that you actually live in. So you 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 do very well for the New York Liberty. Um, mm-hmm. In 2019, you became the Liberty's all-time leading scorer. So what was your time like on the Liberty? Do you feel like that was, like, just talk a little bit about that because you, you inked your name in the history books for that franchise? Uh, my time as a New York Liberty was just, uh, I, I can't even put it in words. It was just like a dream come true. You know, not even just playing, having the Liberty across my chest, but playing at Madison Square Garden. Um, yeah, that's the so Mecca. cool, I bet. You know, yeah. like, I was like, there's times when I would take the train or drive yeah, in and I'll sick. be like, my workplace is Madison Square Garden. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> like, I would get chills going in. Um, and I didn't take that for granted, you know, and the fan base, it was just wild. Like, we had New York jumping. Like, I could say that between 2014, 2017, like, we had New York jumping. And um, I was very fortunate to play with Tanisha Wright and Swing Cash and Cappy and Epiphany and, and other players along the way. Um, but it was just a great experience to have my family, close friends, be able to literally see me, to walk out after a game and go to, like, the finest restaurants, um, just enjoy yeah. that city life. And there's no summers like New York summers. I think anyone who's experienced it can speak to that. Um, so that was pretty yeah exactly so that was um that was pretty sweet yeah it was pretty sweet. that's awesome I love that and I just I I think it's so special when a like I said when an athlete gets to play in front of their friends and family in their hometown I don't know I just I'm like if you can do it do it but that is all to say in 2020 you were traded Mm -hmm. to the mystics Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about that trade because 
you you had said when you played against Liberty, mm-hmm. there's like a quote of you saying they fired you on your off day. Yeah. So, which I like in reading this, I was like, ooh. So what? So can you talk about that trade and just like what went into that and and yeah, like like any professional sport, you know, it always hurts where you know you you put in time with the organization and and there's a breakup like any relationship yeah. you know nobody wants a breakup you want to find a way of how you can make it work but that's just what the time was at that time um and it happened to be on my day off when i when i got that call so i was just being funny everybody anybody who's watched friday everyone knows you know he said when smokey says how you get fired on your day off so it was just a it was just a little joke that happened that came yeah. to me when when the uh, interviewer had asked me that. But again, my time in New York was great. I'm very thankful to have been able to play at the Garden, wear that uniform, have the time that I had. And this is just the next chapter that I stepped into being with the Mystics. Yeah, for sure. Well, with the Mystics, you came back in 2021 because you you had a medical waiver, um, so you didn't go to the bubble Mm -hmm. in 2020 with everything, um, COVID putting you guys in the bubble. You came back in 2021, this last season, Mm-hmm. And you went on an absolute terror. You had 12 double-doubles, scored 30-plus points in 10 games. You led the league in scoring with 23.4 points per game. You set the Mystics franchise record for points in a season. And you moved into second place on the all-time rebound list, which I don't believe that it was just from missed layups. <laughs> so what What went... Like, 2020, medical waiver. You go into 2021, like... How did you approach this past season and and with a new franchise and not having played for the last year? Yeah, for me, during that time, um, while players were in the bubble, I was in the gym. I was just working on my game. You know, I wanted to bring my game to another level. Um, I wanted to make sure that before I'm retired, I can say, like, I actually took time to be in the gym and Mm. just put in the work. And my trainer, Tim Burns, you know, he lives in Williamsburg. He was able to have access to a gym in Brooklyn. And we were just literally in there every day. Um, He changed my shot. He moved me out to where I was consistently able to make threes. Um, And that was rewarding for me. You know, I just love getting better as a person and as a player. Um, I love evolving. I I don't like to be stagnant. Um, I always love learning. And that, I I can say I literally maxed out. And that just showed in the performance that I put in this this past summer um, from just being in the gym and just working on my game. Like it, yeah. it, it still blows my mind coming out of certain games, just what I was able to do or the impact I was able to have. Because, you know, being in year 11, being about to be 33 in December, like I didn't envision that's what I, what you just said is what I would be doing at this point in my career. Um, so it was very rewarding for me um, and satisfying to know that when you put in the work, you get the results. Um, yeah. You know, the, the grind goes unnoticed, but the results don't. And, and that's totally. just all it was. I was just, just putting it's cool. in work. Yeah, it's cool to hear an athlete of your caliber be like, no, I just put in the work. Like, that's, people need to hear that because I feel like so many times people are like, oh, you're just, you've just become so good. Like, that's, you obviously are going to get these numbers, these stats. But at the end of the day, no, it's, it's about the grind that no one sees that gets mm-hmm. you like you said, the numbers that everybody sees, which I think is pretty cool. And not only did you have an insane WNBA season, you won your third gold medal with Team USA this past summer. And you talked about how in 2012 in London, you were just happy to be there. You know, can I get the waters? Can I grab the bags? (laughs) And, you know, Diana and Sue are emotional because they know how much 
goes into winning a gold medal. So at this point, this is your third. You know what goes into it. Mm-hmm. How did you feel on the podium third time around? Gold medal, consistently gold medal, which I'm so jealous of. Yeah, what was that like to be able to, like, I'm, I'm getting a th- number three here? Um, I was super emotional. Uh, I had yeah. friends that, that sent me screenshots, I guess, at the camera angle of, of this, this, my eyes just pouring, tearing. I was just um, super emotional. Just Everything just came yeah. together from how it started and, and where it's ending and Sue and D and the fact that I was still a part of the team to where there's six new players and just what their experiences are going to be along the way and hopefully whatever they learned from me or whatever impact I was able to have. But um, I was just super emotional. You know, Dawn being the first African-American female uh, head coach, you know, all of it just came full circle. And, and I was just uh, very thankful to be a part of it. Yeah, makes sense. And super cool. And again, pretty amazing. I mean, that's five, right? In the in a row for USA yes. Women's Basketball. Seven. Yeah. Seven? seven? They've, only, they've, only, they've only ever won gold, right? Like it's seven. Since women's Basketball seven. has been in the Olympics. Oh my God, it's insane. Like it's actually it's insane to me. It's crazy. It's seven. And you have and you have three of them. Yeah, that's crazy. We have touched on so much of your incredible career on the court. I want to talk a little bit about personal life and just the things that you've done off the court. And I talked about it a little bit in the intro, but um, you, you've had a very philanthropic career, so to speak, um, off the court. You established a foundation called Hopi's Heart Foundation, which provides AEDs to schools and organizations across the U.S. Um, and I'm curious, where did that desire come from and, and what prompted you to specifically choose that type of foundation and and type of work to you know donate half of your WNBA salary to to set up that sort of thing can you talk a little bit about that yeah Hopi's Heart Foundation um well first and foremost uh you know my my family just being of Christian faith you know it's just very imperative to be a servant unto others and to be very giving you know growing up for Christmas I wouldn't just wake up and go uh open up my toys or gifts we were giving out um, to our church. Um, same thing when it came to Thanksgiving Day, we're giving out food. So it's always been about others since I've been um, young, and it's just always been within me. Uh, so I want to say when my aunt passed away, my mother's oldest sister, Maureen, her nickname is Hopi. She was the firstborn out of six, and so my grandmother said she brought hope to the family. Um, when she passed away at that time, March 2013, right after that I had read an article on a high school basketball player who had suddenly collapsed in Detroit, Michigan. His name was Wes Leonard. And his family now runs the West Leonard Heart Team. And when I learned that he collapsed from sudden cardiac arrest, which is indiscriminate towards race, age, or gender, is when your heart suddenly stops. Um, and when I learned that what he needed was an AED, an automated external defibrillator, I was just like, okay, wow, this could have been me, this could have been anyone. And at the time I was playing in Poland. And then when I did mm. a deeper dive and I started thinking about the gymnasiums I was playing in and them not having AEDs or the, the league I was playing in, FIBA EuroLeague, not having AEDs, that's when I was like, okay, what can I do? I want to have something to reflect my aunt and her giving ways. And so I started Hopi's Heart Foundation where it's an AED grant program where any nonprofit organization can come to the website. Um, in 100 words, just explain uh, why this device is important to you and we'll donate an AED. To me, it shouldn't come down to an essay as to why an organization or institution has an AED. You should think of an AED as a fire extinguisher. You know, the way when you start school or anything, you do a fire drill, you know, your routine is the way you should go through your AED program. And, you know, sudden cardiac arrest, it it claims over over 300,000 lives per year. 
Um, and we saw the fruit of our labor July 13th, 2017, when Hopi's yeah. Heart was able to save a life. Mr. Dan Carlson, um, he was at the organization of the Marbridge Foundation in Austin, Texas, and he was the head of landscaping. So they house um, special needs adults in preparation for the Special Olympics. And he was just working outside and he collapsed and an employee was able to retrieve the AED and use it on him and he survived. And I was able to meet him September 1st, 2017. I won't ever forget it. Um, New York Liberty, they surprised me during one of our shoot arounds and brought him in. My mom was there, it was this whole thing. And I was so oh emotional gosh. just to see that you know, if, if all Hopi's heart was able to do was save his life, I'm, I'm so thankful. So to date, we've put out over 430 AEDs. Wow. Um, we've been able to impact FIBA EuroLeague with AEDs. And yeah, that's just my passion, just to continue to keep communities heart safe um, and just continue to just give and just yeah. raise awareness of sudden cardiac arrest. So that's Hopi's heart. That's incredible. And yeah. I mean, like you said, you, you like the fact that what you put in place saved someone's life not very many people can speak to that or can say that, which is, which is, and it, I mean, it's, it's really amazing. And I don't know you that well, but I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be sitting here talking to you about it because it's a <laughs> pretty, you. pretty awesome thing as an athlete to, to, to think that way. I don't think all athletes do. So, um, or people for that matter. And then on top of that, doing that incredible thing, you also have, one of the coolest second careers of any professional athlete that I've talked to so far on this podcast, you direct and produce documentary films. Can you tell me how you got into this? Like what, what made you interested in making films? Um, what was the inspiration behind making your first one? You've made two now. Just talk a little bit about, yeah, being a director. Yeah. It's funny you say that. Um, I was in Seattle and I went out to eat with Sue Okay. and she was just like, so you, so you like make film. And I was like, yeah, I guess I do. I guess like, I it, it didn't. It didn't even dawn on me like, oh, this is something you do. But I, I got into it. Um, I did a film on my dad. His name is Ralston Charles. Mm-hmm. Uh, he migrated over in 1967 from Trinidad, and he's a recording producer for his record label Charlie's Records, which uh, basically focuses on the musical genre of calypso and soca, which cool. is the highly regarded genre in, in Trinidad and Tobago. And so when he came over, he opened his record store, uh, Charlie's Calypso City, which is in the heart of Brooklyn in Bed-Stuy on North Street and Fulton. It's still there to this day. And I was there in 2018 and my best friend Kalena from UConn was just like, you know, you should do a film on your dad. Like, it'll be great. I didn't know where to start, where to end. Started asking my dad questions and I was just like, you know what, this could be a great story. So Charlie's Records just reflects his journey migrating over into America being a pioneer for the music of Calypso and Soca. It, it features his um, record label, Charlie's Records, his store, Charlie's Calypso City, and his studio, Ralston Recordings, which housed a lot of early hip hop from Lottie Dottie and the show with Doug Fresh and Slick Rick, um, If I Rule the World with Curtis Blow, hits from Run DMC and the Fat Boys, I can go on. Um, but just being able to, to do a story on my dad and seeing him as an unsung hero, I knew I wanted to tell more stories of other unsung heroes. Um, and then just recently, this past summer, I did a documentary short on, called Game Changer, which follows Tanya DePass, who's like one of the faces of gaming, um, being a game developer. Um, she develops games so black characters are re- represented in the right way. You know, She got sick and tired of not seeing herself as a superhero while playing video games and just what she pushes for, um, for the underserved uh, population. Just being able to have a nonprofit called I Need More Diverse Games, 
which puts individuals in the largest gaming development conference in San Francisco, and she fully funds it for them to have access, um, for them to network and just, you know, dream and aspire to be in those positions. When you look at video games and you wonder why it looks the same, it's because it's the same individuals who are making the games. For sure. So she's pushing for more representation and just... Um, just changing the gaming landscape. And I was very humbled. Uh, I was very thankful that she allowed me to tell her story. And so that's Charlie's Records and um, Game Changer. And it's so cool. Like, I don't, I don't honestly see it as something like a second job. I just see it as, oh, this is, this is a cool story to tell. Who yeah. can help me do it? Um, I always dream big. I'm very ambitious. Um, nobody can tell me I can't do something. Um, that's, just, that's just me, anyone who knows me well. So I just went for it. And, and it totally. was a lot of fun doing it. How have you managed to do that while also being so successful on the court? Like, where, how, in terms of even just time, like, how do you balance those of, of, of making films while also being a professional athlete? Um, I, I think you make time for what you're passionate about, you know? Yeah. And, and so for me, like, making Charlie's Records went into the 2018 season you know there are practices where i'm coming in practices at 11:30, and i'm coming in at like 3 a.m from doing interviews um oh, or we have like games and i'm going off to do it to do more interviews you know we were still doing the film um as the season was going on but i just made time for it because i wanted my dad to be able to smell his roses while he was still here you know my dad's in his 70s he put so much into the music of calypso and soca for it to be where it is and it was really special and rewarding for me to give back to him from doesn't even compare to all that he's done for me in my life um and so that's just for me i just do what i'm passionate and and yeah. i make time for what i make time for and i figure hey if if i could be in the gym and do this i, I could i could do this part you know so yeah that's cool very very cool very impressive this has been so fun, and I've I've loved talking to you today. And we've taken up enough of your time, but we have a couple good. repeat questions for you that we throw in at the end. So, the first one: if you weren't playing basketball, you would be probably a film producer. You are a film producer. <laughs> <laughs> if I wasn't playing basketball, I don't, I don't know. You know what? I um, my senior year at UConn, I I interned at a level two jail, um, the Burgeon Institute, which is at the back of the at UConn, and I always said I. Would, wanted to be a warden i, I just mm. wanted to be within the prison system um i minored in uh in criminal justice so I, I don't know it would be in some form of giving back you know i had to come up with uh different group sessions about the inmates reintegration back into society so it as long the line of nonprofit and giving back as long as i was giving back i think it'll be somewhere in, in there i don't know if film would have came into play but, yeah um, interesting yeah that's cool very <laughs> very cool how do you take your coffee I don't drink coffee at all. Oh, I knew we were going to come across somebody like this. Okay, none. I don't drink coffee at, at all. I mean, I'm the fake coffee drinker. I'll go to Starbucks and um, have a caramel macchiato or something. Okay. If, I'm, if I'm feeling myself or something, but I don't, I don't drink coffee. Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah, there's, there's people like you out there. I know there is. So there you go. No coffee. I'm yeah, a fake no coffee bucket. drinker. That's why, that's why okay. I ask. Who's the one person in your life that has had the biggest impact on your career? The biggest impact? Oh, that's that's tough. That's tough. I know. There's, there's more than one. one. There's more than I one. Know. You know what? I'm a I'm a shout out um, Tanisha Wright. You know, she just became the head coach of the Atlanta Dream, and I know she's going to do great things there. But 
I played with her for three seasons in New York Liberty, and um, she definitely just changed my mindset, my approach, what I needed to do, the accountability piece. But um, Tanisha Wright, I'll, I'll say her as a teammate. I'm still going to say Swing Cash and, and Coach Oriyama. I still got to throw them okay. in. Okay, you can, you can, you can. I'll let you. <laughs> but I'll say um, Tanisha Wright for sure. Yeah, Tanisha Wright. Nice. Love that. Shout out to her. All right. They say work hard, get lucky. How much of your success is predicated on luck? None. Uh, None. Zero. No, I I believe I'm extremely blessed, man. I luck. I I can't say that. You know, I I put in work. Um, God is good. Um, I'm extremely blessed. I I don't like to say luck. I'm extremely blessed. So I'm very thankful. All right. Yeah. All right. Zero percent. I think you might be the first person. I you. I think we might have had one other person that said zero, but I like it. I'm into it. All right. Last question, Tina. This has been um, such a pleasure talking to you. So last one. Like we've talked about today, you've accomplished so much already. Where do you want to go next and how do you keep pushing? Where do I want to go next? Um, I want to win a championship before I retire. That's very, I was one, okay. I that's was very important to me. That. That's very important to me. Um, or I want to go down trying. I just want to compete, you know. Uh, I, I just need a, just need to win a, a championship. You know, I always say uh, delayed does not mean it's denied. So I'm still believing. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm still uh, going to keep putting in the work. And, and that's why I believe I haven't arrived yet because I haven't done that, you know. Um, that's what's important to me is just winning the championship. I love it. And I hope you win it with the Mystics and I can come watch. Um, I'm in the same boat as you. I haven't won an NWSL championship. So Uh, I'm I'm needing that. I'm needing that. Yeah. Tina, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, You have had an incredible career on the court, off the court. I want to come see you play in D.C. Hopefully that happens soon. Uh, Thank you for your time today. And and I'm I'm excited to watch you hopefully win a championship in the near future. Likewise, likewise. I'll be watching as well. Thank you for having me. This is great. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Our show is produced by Just Women Sports. For more great sports content, go to justwomensports.com and be sure to subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. I'm Kelly O'Hara, and you've been listening to the Just Women Sports podcast. Catch you next time.